there is you know, quite remarkable efflorescence of religious literature, apparently religious innovation, in the Antonine era, and particularly in the age of Marcus himself. That's certainly true for Christianity. I think it's also true, as we shall see, for Platonism, um, and it's true for Mithraism, arguably for um, rituals of the Magna Mater as well, which I won't be talking about here. What I want to talk about particularly is what seems like a resurgence of interest in the demiurgic character of God, um, both in what we might think of as the hegemony of the, uh, the unity of God, at least in a henotheistic, if not strictly monotheistic sense, but also specifically in the creative character of deity and in the limitations which attach to that creative character. This is also, of course, the period in which we have a document of a Roman emperor's own religious sensibility, uh, of which I don't think we have any previous record. I'm not going to speculate very much on social causes of religious ideas, because even if it's ever profitable to do so, I very much doubt that we have the information either about the uh, social conditions of Marcus's reign uh, or about the religious movements that unfolded in them uh, to be able to make any sensible connections between, uh, as it were, material and social culture and the history of ideas. But some people may wish to suggest um, that either the prosperity of the empire or the sense of decline, depending on what you think characterised the period, may have something to do with people's notions of the divine and its operation in the world. Now, I've used the term demiurge, which I assume is familiar to most people, certainly familiar to the person who's just... Demiurge appears as a religious figure, rather than simply as the name for an artisan, a creator of sculptors, sculptures uh, in the Timaeus of Plato, of course. So the creator of the world in the Timaeus is called the Demiurgos, if you like, craftsman or artificer. Now, according to the myth, which is told by the person called Timaeus, um, and for which Plato does not take absolute responsibility, the sensible world is generated in contrast to the realm of forms which is ungenerated. That's to say, genetos as opposed to agenetos. How many ends there should be in the word genetos and exactly what it implies um, would be a very long discussion indeed. But naive readers, at least as we might say, have usually understood Plato to be saying that the world has an origin in time. Now, it's often said that, indeed was said in the second century AD that we're talking about, that Plato envisages a creation of the world in matter. Often God, matter and the forms are often said to be the three causes, um, three ITI of existence. But Plato doesn't actually use the term matter in the Timaeus. He speaks about a receptacle and that receptacle might be most reasonably identified for space. You might need another hand out there, I'm not sure. But from Aristotle onwards, it was conventional to think of the receptacle in which the world is created or generated as being matter. Certainly the receptacle is in some sense turbulent and resistant to the imposition of form. And it would appear that the imperfections of the world are regarded as inseparable from the plane of existence in which it's created. You can have perfection in the world of forms. You can't expect to have perfection in the material universe, which is the one that we live in. In a sense, this is the best of all possible worlds. It's the best world that could exist in this medium. In another sense, it's the worst of all possible worlds because as compared with the world of ideas, um, it's vastly inferior. Now, as I said, this dialogue was often understood to mean that the world has a temporal origin, a beginning. Aristotle thought that this made no sense. Assuming that the demiurge is good, and Plato says expressly that he is good, and the reason why he creates is because he wants to communicate his goodness to a lower realm of being, and assuming that he is eternal, why would he choose to create a world at one time rather than another? In response to this, in the period we're talking about, Calvinus or Calvisius Tyrus differentiates a number of possible meanings of the word geneton and argues that an ontological dependence on the world of forms rather than a beginning in time is what's implied 
and that concomitant to this is being subject to vicissitude, to generation and corruption. So it's not that the world itself has an origin in time, but the things which inhabit this world are subject to birth and death. So temporality is a characteristic of the world, but it doesn't mean that the world itself has a finite history. Now this, as I say, is the view of Calvinus Tyrus um, in our own era. He's living, of course, nearly 500 years after the Timaeus was first written. The immediate successors of Plato, Spusippus, Xenocrates, and later on, Antiochus of Ascalon, Cicero's time, don't seem to have a great deal to say about the interpretation of the Timaeus, at least as far as existing records go. But of course, all these people are quoted for particular reasons by philosophers with particular interests. Um, the fact that they were of less interest to Proclus than the people that we're talking about in the 2nd century AD doesn't necessarily mean they had nothing to say. But anyway, as far as our evidence goes, um, the first sustained discussion of what Plato was saying in the Timaeus is Plutarch's um, on the procreation or generation of the soul in the Timaeus. Plutarch necessarily does argue that the world has a finite temporal history. He also argues that matter or the receptacle is not merely turbulent insofar as it lacks the perfection and stability of form. It actually has a malign or malevolent soul. Evidence that there is some kind of soul uh, in the receptacle can be drawn from the Timaeus, but evidence for an evil soul can really only be found in the laws. And most scholars would say that the evidence that Plutarch finds in the laws is not, in fact, compelling. Um, but Plutarch understands the laws to say that in addition to the good world soul, there is also an evil world soul. Now, Plutarch does use the term demiurgos. Most of the time, he actually seems to prefer the term theos, or God, which is perfectly legitimate because Plato often speaks in the Timaeus of Hotheos. Now, Plutarch, of course, is writing well before the Antonine era, a good 50 years before. But Atticus and Numenius are representatives of what we might call classic Middle Platonism. And they're both writing in the late 2nd century. Uh, the dates for their florid are pretty arbitrary, but we can be fairly sure that they were both alive during the reign of Marcus Aurelius, even with exactly how old they were at any given time. Now, is remembered chiefly as a man who drew a very strong line between Platonism and the teaching of Aristotle, at a time when, apparently, other people thought they could be harmonised. Now, one of the ways of harmonising Plato with Aristotle would be to argue that the Timaeus doesn't really describe a creation of the world with a finite temporal history, that Plato actually thought the world to be everlasting without beginning or end. Atticus plainly does not believe this. He also has an answer to a vexed question within the history of Platonism as to what the relation is between the Demiurge and the forms. The world that the Demiurge creates is an imitation of the forms, or the paradigm, as it's called in the Timaeus. As Plato describes it, you would assume that the forms are distinct from the Demiurge and possibly even superior to him. The Demiurge is the one who decides to create, but the forms determine what the Demiurge will create. Now, some Platonists were not happy with this idea that the Demiurge was constrained by the forms. And Atticus appears to be one of those who wish the Demiurge to be superior to the forms. The forms are actually thoughts in the Demiurgic intellect. At least Proclus tells us that, and a long excerpt in Eusebius' preparation for the, for the Gospel plainly indicates that the forms are no or thoughts in the mind of the Demiurge, who is therefore the supreme being. There is nothing Demiurge he effectively is the same thing as the good. Now, apparently, Atticus can also be credited with quite the opposite view, according to another part of Proctus's commentary on the Timaeus, but the one that's best attested anyway is that the forms are in the mind of God. Now, we have a very different picture in Numenius of Apamea, writing at the same time. According to him, the first god, the supreme being, is definitely not the demiurge. The first god is in eternal repose, and he seems to be identical with Plato's form of the good, which Numenius also describes as the outer agathon, the good in itself. Now the second god, or second mind, has the responsibility, has the, uh, the natural uh, propensity to contemplate the first god. That's what his proper being consists in. And presumably the world of forms 
somehow arises in the course of this contemplation. Exactly where you locate Plato's world of forms in Numenius is not altogether clear, but if the first mind is a form of the good, then the contemplation of the first mind by the second mind is presumably the origin of the world of ideas, since in Plato's Republic the other ideas are subordinate to the good. However, Numenius introduces something which is not in Plato's Timaeus or any other dialogue of Plato, the notion that the second mind somehow became a periopticiatu, forgetful of himself. And being forgetful of himself, he lost that steadfast contemplation of the higher intellect and looked down to the realm of matter. And the result of this was a kind of rupture or bifurcation in the second god, producing apparently three gods altogether, although whether the third god is the world or the world's soul is not clear. But what is clear is that the world, as we know it, comes into being as a result of this turning away of the second mind from the first and the schism which the second mind undergoes as a result. So the second mind is not essentially good, but he can be said to be good by participation. He can be said to plant what is sown by the first mind. He is the demiurge, and to all intents and purposes, he's responsible for the creation of the world and for the operation of it. Um, but he's not the highest being. And this suggests, of course, what you might think of as a certain pessimism about the nature of the world. Um, the god who is responsible for the world and in charge of it not only isn't the highest being, but has actually in some way been untrue to himself, even in bringing this world into being. It suggests that the powers of God, the powers of the demiurgic God, will be rather limited, and that we probably couldn't hope for an absolutely... Um, consummate ref um, resolution of all the evils in this world. Now we also find the Demiurge popping into the writings of Galen, whom of course we know best, if we know him at all, as a writer on medicine. Galen also has in the Arabic world uh, a great reputation as a philosopher, in fact the third of the Greek philosophers after Aristotle and Plato. And this reputation depends not only upon his um, supreme authority as a medical writer, but also on his um, postulation of a demiurge who, in many ways, looks rather like the Christian, Jewish or Islamic God. But although this demiurge is responsible for the natural order and responsible for regular causal operation, Galen is not at all sure, it seems, uh, quite how far his providence extends. There are evils in this world, that's obvious. Can we somehow lay these at the door of the Demiurge? Can we say either that the Demiurge is incapable of preventing these evils, or that he will one day overcome them, or that perhaps in his sight they're not evils at all? Well, Galen doesn't seem to have much to say on this matter. He's pretty sure that the Demiurge is not the cause of evil. Whatever else you say about evil, you don't say the Demiurge caused it, but exactly what is the reason for this circumscription of the power of the Demiurge is not at all clear. So this Demiurgic understanding of the divine... Um, often, though not invariably, goes along with some sense of the evil and imperfection of the world. And what these thinkers are trying to do is explain how the world can, on the one hand, be the creation of a deity who is unique and benevolent, indeed uniquely benevolent, and powerful, and yet apparently may not be entirely omnipotent. So, whereas... Now, I suppose the problem of evil tends to lead some people to abandon belief in a god altogether, and other people to argue that the evils are either illusory or not as great as they seem. There is a third option, which many of these speakers em uh, thinkers embrace, which is to say that the problem of evil doesn't defeat belief in God, it does defeat belief in the omnipotence of God. We can imagine a deity who is benevolent, creating a world that is good, but not being capable of managing a world to such a degree as to prevent the existence of evil. In explaining how it is that divine providence doesn't seem to act at every level of creation, some philosophers accept the operation of fate to a limited degree. Platonists, at least, are averse to any notion that absolutely everything in the world is controlled by fate. 
But they may well accept that at the level we know, the level below the moon may be, or the material level, fate is operating under the aegis of divine providence. It wouldn't operate if God didn't allow it to operate, but nonetheless, to all intents and purposes, our bodies are subject to some mechanical chain of causes. What they will never admit is that our souls are completely subject to any mechanical chain of causes. If any philosophers in the ancient world really believed this, then certainly it wasn't the Platonists who always wanted to maintain the freedom of the soul, although they do integrate this with a doctrine of transmigration which seems severely to abridge our freedom, at least in the choice of what kind of life we will lead. But within the life we lead, Platonists would insist that we have a great deal of free will. They will often regard the Stoics as denying that free will, or at least allowing less free will. Stoics are also regarded by peripatetics on the whole as having an unduly deterministic view of the world order. So in the writing of Alexander of Aphrodisias, for example, on behalf of the peripatetics, the operation of final causes as against efficient causes is strongly affirmed, and um, the possibility of our acting as free agents and bringing into being that which was not is strongly affirmed. But in the case of Alexander of Aphrodisias, we don't hear much of the demiurge, uh, that not being uh, an Aristotelian concept. In the meditations of Marcus Aurelius, as Richard Rutherford, among others, have shown, uh, there is also a strong sense of the evanescence and corruption of the material realm. One of the ways in which you detach yourself from bodily affairs is to recognise the inherent corruptibility of the body and all the concomitant pains and inconveniences that that brings. Again, as far as I can remember, Marcus doesn't have strong opinions about the uh, the demiurgic character of God, although he does talk about theos, um, but his religious opinions uh, obviously don't take a strictly platonic cast. Now, but Marcus is perhaps an example of someone whose primary interests are, as we might say, ethical rather than metaphysical. He's not concerned so much to explain why the Demiurge doesn't have as much power as you might want him to have. The question is more how we as individuals deal with this world, how we exercise our freedom, such freedom as we have, in such a way as to come to terms with our obvious impotence in other respects. It's obvious to everybody that there's a great deal of the world that we can't control, however exactly you explain it. So the question for a certain type of philosopher is simply, what do we have control over and how should that control be exercised? Now, one group who I would describe as Christian, though some would regard them as in a rather liminal position, who take a very dim view of the present state of the cosmos and whose main concern is from it um, are the group uh, or cluster of groups. Now, in origin, I would say Gnostic thought arises, as Simon Petumont argues, from the anti-cosmic character of Christianity. A lot of theologians nowadays at least want to say that this is not true and Christianity is very world-affirming um, and that um, Christians have no problem at all with things like sex or going to parties. Um, but I don't think this was true for St. Paul. I think St. Paul thought that a great deal was wrong with the present world and that Christians live in a state of bondage from which they have to deliver themselves by practices that we would now consider to be highly ascetic. What differentiates Paul from the Gnostics, as we call them, is that Paul does not think that the world is in origin um, a tragic creation or an evil one. In origin, of course, from Paul's point of view, the world is perfect. It comes directly from the hand of an omnipotent creator. And the first human beings uh, were without sin. It's because of the sinfulness of these human beings, according to Paul, that we now live in what he calls a body of death, from which we can only hope to be delivered and made uh, fit for the resurrection by the grace of Christ. But the Gnostics go further than this. The Gnostics say that the very creation, the very inception of the world, was, as it were, a divine error. Within the fullness or pleroma of the Godhead, one of the eons which constitutes this Godhead fell away. Oddly enough, it was an eon called wisdom. The 30th power of God, as it were, God's own wisdom falls victim to a kind of arrogance. It tries to create, without its consort, Thelema, who represents the will of God. In other words, this is some kind of attempt to bring things into being 
without the divine will. Or alternatively, wisdom tries to search the depths of the Father and therefore rise above her station as the lowest of the powers of God and assume the prerogatives that only belong to the highest power of God. Now, how seriously the Gnostics took this as a description of what actually went on in the divine realm is not clear. It clearly, in some ways, mirrors what they see as the source of human sin. Human sin arises from creating without the will of God. For example, the creation of idols um, is characteristic which human beings turn away from God. And what is a creator of idols? Well, of course, he's a demiurgos, he's a craftsman. Again, trying to know more about God than God allows us to know. Um, trying to search the inscrutable things of God is obviously another ubiquitous root of human error. So on the human plane, at least, Sophia's fall is perfectly intelligible. But it would seem that the Gnostics, unlike St. Paul and unlike mainstream Christians, want to retroject this fall into the Godhead itself. Now, Sophia, the wisdom of God, does actually manage to repent. Um, doesn't quite get restored to the fullness of God, but she at least achieves some kind of equilibrium. But in the course of falling away from the Godhead and being excluded from it, she produces a child. And like all pathogenetic reproduction in Greek mythology, the offspring is deformed. This deformed offspring is the Demiurge, whom we know as the creator of this present world. He creates it, oddly enough, out of the tears of wisdom, which are the source of matter. He thinks he's creating a perfect copy realm, like Plato's Demiurge. However, he's not doing so. What he's actually creating is a prison for benighted souls. And the seven planets are the jailers in this prison, governed by the seven archons whom the Demiurge himself has created. It's fortunate that Sophia, in her repentance, has managed to sow a few seeds of genuine wisdom in this world. The people who are lucky enough to be born with these seeds of wisdom will be saved. Everybody else will perish. The Demiurge himself can expect to perish because he has soul, but he has no spirit. He's not truly divine. This myth, which I've just rehearsed, is normally regarded as a myth of Ptolemaeus, writing in the reign of Marcus Aurelius, the man attacked around 185 AD by Irenaeus of Lyon. It probably goes back, or it's alleged to go back to Valentinus, who lived in, uh, earlier in the reign of Hadrian, or early years of Antoninus Pius, but some doubt has been cast on that genealogy. But anyway, this is certainly a current Gnostic myth in the um, second half of the Antonine era. Another myth which appears to have been current at the same time is what we call the Ophite myth. We know about this from a writer called Celsus, whom I'll talk about in more detail later. In impugning Christianity, Celsus, um, in his so-called True Logos, his attack on Christianity, hauled out this diagram, uh, which we know of from no other uh, place, in which a sect who, according to Origen, his critic, were called the Ophites, or snake worshippers, construct a ladder from the lower realm to the highest. This ladder um, has altogether seven, uh, altogether ten rungs, of which seven are the planetary gates. Um, the planets are perceived of as evil and oppressive, just as they are in the Ptolemaean system, but they're also, they're also considered now as a kind of itinerary through which the soul must pass in order to reach the supernal realm. The snake comes into it, um, as in the name Ophite, because the snake somehow functions as a symbol of the, um, the way from um, the lowest realm to the highest. In general, the groups that we call Gnostic tend to take a rather more positive view of snakes uh, than the third chapter of the book of Genesis, where the snake is the author of sin. The reconstruction of this diagram has occupied a great many scholars. We don't have the diagram itself, of course. All we have is Celsus's description of it, intermingled with uh, Origen's uh, interjections. Um, and exactly how one reconstructs it is a matter of great debate, but it seems clear anyway that right at the top of these seven planetary gates is a demiurge, um, and this demiurge is described as an accursed god. Now, this may just reflect the same kind of um, hostility to the demiurge um, that we find in the Ptolemaean or Valentinian myth, but we should remember that the term accursed God does actually have some purchase in the New Testament. According to St. Paul in his letter to the Galatians, Christ overcame the law by becoming a curse for those who were themselves cursed by the law. And this, at least in Galatians, is Paul's understanding of the atonement, that by becoming a curse for us, Christ took away from us the curse of the law. 
So there is a perfectly good Pauline Christian sense in which Christ at least can be called an accursed God. And in the New Testament, Christ is the creator. We should also remember that um, Christ was quite literally cursed by many Christians who didn't have the fortitude to withstand um, the uh, measures of uh, someone like Pliny the Younger, uh, who says uh, in his uh, letter describing um, his interrogation of Christians that he didn't allow people who um, denied their Christianity to, to leave until they'd actually cursed the name of Christ, because that was a good way of testing whether they were real Christians or not. And of course, if they were real Christians, they were then likely to be sentenced. So there are several senses in which the term accursed God might be used, and it's perfectly possible that all of them are actually intended in this Gnostic diagram. Now, one interest of this diagram for scholars is that Celsus alleges that the Ophites stole the diagram from the Mithraists. Now, who are the Mithraists? Well, of course, hardly anybody knows, because there is an almost complete bifurcation between the material evidence for Mithraism and the literary evidence for Mithraism. There are several philosophers including Eubulus, writing in the reign of Marcus Aurelius, who thought they knew perfectly well what the Mithraists were teaching. They taught that the soul descends through the Tropic of Cancer and returns through the Tropic of Capricorn, using the planets as a ladder as it does so. They also taught that the creator of this cosmos was Mithras himself, although apparently Mithras is here understood as a benevolent and not as a malevolent demiurge. That's what Eubulus tells us, as quoted by Porphyry, and Eubulus, as I say, is writing in the reign of Marcus Aurelius. On the other hand, if we look at the, uh, the caves, the many caves which have been excavated by archaeologists, well, the planets are there. The Mithraeus clearly have some interest in the configuration of the astral bodies. According to the prevailing theories in the English-speaking world, represented above all by Roger Beck, Mithraism has just about nothing to do with the Persian god of the same name. It's all got something to do with how the planets and stars were aligned, not in the reign of Marcus Aurelius, but at some date in the distant past, the beginning of some kind of great year, uh, perhaps two or three thousand years before the Antonine era. Again, a lot of ingenuity has gone into reconstructing um, this attempt to reverse the precession of the equinoxes, but what Beck and just about everybody else who works on the archaeology of Mithraism seems pretty sure of is that Mithras is not a demiurgic figure. So we have this, as I say, this dissonance between the literary evidence. Celsus, on the one hand, claims that the Ophites stole from the Mithras, a diagram in which the demiurge presides over the seven planets, so presumably Celsus believed that the Myth Mithras had some sort of philosophy about the demiurge, exactly what it, what it was, we don't know. And Porphyry, as I say, expressly quotes Eubulus as saying that the Mithras thought that Mithras was the demiurge of the cosmos, and yet our current experts tell us that the Mithras believed no such thing. This shows, nothing else, how complicated the religious situation must have been, no doubt. There were, in fact, different views among Mithras themselves. I mean, the thing is, of course, it's a religion, as far as we know, without scriptures, um, probably without any magisterial priesthood doesn't even have an archetypal myth. There seem to be several different sources in which Mithras figures, but no one Mithraic myth in the way that there is at least one basic Christian gospel. Why is it not possible that authentic Mithras, in the sense of people who were initiated and took part in these assemblies, actually had very different ideas as to what it was all about? Anyway, if we move on now to the section I've entitled Pagans and Christians, at least... The good thing about Christianity, of course, from this point of view, is not only that its literature in the Antonine era is quite copious, but that they are pretty dogmatic uh, in the technical as well as the non-technical sense in saying what they believe or disbelieve. We are not in much doubt as to what Christians believed in the Antonine era. In that respect, they present a refreshing contrast to the Mithraists. Now, just to indicate um, the disparity between the volume of Christian literature in this period and what preceded it in the second century, we can enumerate the apologies, which everybody accepts to be from the Antonine era and, and preponderantly from the reign of Marcus himself. So Justin's so-called first apology is dedicated to Antoninus Pius and Marcus, and therefore obviously predates the reign of Marcus. Um, the second apology is undatable and probably never published. The legatio or embassy of Athenagoras, addressed to Marcus and Commodus, 
Lamentations addressed to the Greeks is clearly written of Marcus Aurelius. Theophilus of Antioch to Autolycus probably just creeps in before the death of Marcus. The Apologies of Melito and Apollinaris, which are now lost, were certainly written in this era. The erudite um, scholar Robert Grant, uh, about 20-odd years ago, nearly uh, 25 years ago now, uh, wrote a article in Vili Christiani in which he imagined uh, no fewer than five apologies being delivered to Marcus himself during his progress through Asia Minor, you know, five apologies which we know of, uh, Grant argued that all of these could have been delivered to Marcus in the course of the same two-year itinerary in Asia Minor, uh, in which case it's not surprising that Marcus seems to have become a persecutor of Christians, and anybody who had to suffer that, I'd have thought, would wish to extinguish the new religion. Now, that's what's granted by all scholars. But then there are also scholars... Uh, chief among them now, Marcus Vincent, King's College, uh, who would argue that a great deal of literature which we might be inclined to think of as very early is actually also a product of the Antonine era. Vincent argues that we have no evidence for the existence of any of the four canonical Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, before the Antonine era. That in fact, although of course there were traditions about Christ before then, they didn't crystallise into the Gospels that we know until after 150 AD. Vincent and many others, such as Timothy Barnes, would also argue that the letters ascribed to Ignatius of Antioch, uh, seven theologically very important letters, conventionally dated to around 110 AD and attributed to the martyr Ignatius of Antioch, were actually forged in the Antonine era. Now, if this is so, it has to be said that apart from the letters of Paul and the book of Revelation, there isn't an awful lot of you know, really worthwhile Christian literature that isn't written in the Antonine era. It's as if the religion was entirely reinvented. That's if you accept Vincent's redating of the Gospels and the letters of Ignatius, which I don't, but if you accept the extreme view, then you know, effectively Christianity would be born in the Antonine era and not merely defended and consolidated. Now, certainly Christians came to the notice of the pagan authorities in the Antonine era. Justin's martyrdom, for example, uh, falls just within the reign of Marcus. The dating of Polycarp's martyrdom is disputed, but on the latest dating, it would fall within Marcus's reign, and it probably does fall within the Antonine era, at least. And then we have the famous or infamous massacre of Christians at Lyon, or Lugdunum, in 177 AD, uh, described uh, in the most lurid and circumstantial detail in a letter that takes up ten pages in a typical printed text of uh, Eusebius' church history. Sorry, that's book five, chapter one of Eusebius' church. Um, furthermore, Christianity ought to the notice of philosophers, and in a way, of course, that's a kind of accolade. I mean, that philosophers actually thought in the Antonine era that Christianity was worth attacking in the same way as philosophers customarily attacked each other. So, in a sense, Christianity's pretensions to be a philosophy, which you find in Justin and Athenagoras and Theophilus, are vindicated by the fact that the philosophers, um, with one voice, unite to attack it. Uh, Marcus, for example, sneers. Uh, admittedly, he sneers at the rather unphilosophical character of the so-called uh, Galileans, who just commit suicide for no reason. Galen also contrasts his own understanding of the demiurge, which he claims is based upon rational uh, interrogation of the phenomena, with the Christian view and the, and, um, and the Jewish view, which is based solely on revelation. Moreover, Christians and Jews think that all God had to do was speak in order to bring the world into being, whereas the reason why Galen calls him a demiurge is because Galen thinks that God actually had to use methods which are at least analogous to the methods which a craftsman would use in creating a statue out of matter. Um, God may be more powerful than we are, but you, know, you can't attribute to him things that are totally irrational between the way he works and the way that other rational beings work. For sustained, uh, the most valuable external account of Christianity that we have from the 2nd century, uh, or indeed the 3rd, is the death of Peregrinus by the satirist Lucian of Samosata. And of course one never knows exactly what to make of Lucian. From the time of the Byzantine scholiast right to the present day, there has been dif dispute as to how much Lucian really disliked Christianity, how far he intended the picture of Christianity he gave to be totally pejorative, and how far there might be some redeeming touches, as there are in Lucian's picture of the cynics. What seems pretty clear is that Lucian did not like Peregrinus, whose death he purports to be describing. Um, Peregrinus uh, burned himself to death at the Olympic Games um, in um, one of two possible Olympiads in the uh, 160s. Lucian claims that before he 
immolated himself, he had a career as a Christian and had several times tried to fulfil his death wish by getting himself martyred, but the governors of provinces were too canny for him and didn't give him the martyrdom he desired, and eventually the Christians themselves got sick of him and excommunicated him. It should be said that several Christians writing after Lucian refer to Peregrinus as a famous pagan who'd shown great fortitude by putting himself to death. Tertullian at least speaks with some um, esteem of Peregrinus. Nobody whether they're for or against Peregrinus, apart from Lucian, says that he was ever a Christian. So there has to be some doubt as to whether this Christian career is simply invented by Lucian as a way of explaining why Peregrinus would choose to burn himself to death for no reason whatsoever. Whatever the truth about Peregrinus' Christianity, at least the fact that Lucian gives this long account of Christians is in a sense a proof that they had arrived. And then we don't have exactly, but we know a great deal, true Logos by a man called Celsus. We have very long excerpts from this in the work written by Origen around 248 AD called Contra Chelsum Against Celsus. Um, we can't be sure, of course, that Origen quotes the whole of it or that he quotes fairly, but he certainly does quote a great deal of it, and you know, pages and pages of it can be reconstructed from Origen's work. From this it's fairly clear that he's not an Epicurean, even though Origen keeps hinting that he is. Now, one reason why Origen may say this is because Lucian had a friend called Celsus, who appears to have been an Epicurean, uh, and Origen may have known this since Origen was very well read. Also, of course, calling someone an Epicurean is a good way of denigrating them in the eyes of all the other philosophical schools. There's a general agreement among Stoics, Aristotelians and Platonists that they all have some kind of belief in divine providence, and Epicureans don't, and therefore the Epicureans are outcasts. Uh, and certainly what Origen is often trying to do is to show that Celsus doesn't understand the ways of providence and therefore has proved himself to be an Epicurean. Of course, in fact, Origen would have disagreed with nearly all the demiurgic views of God and of creation that I've talked about earlier. Any view which suggests that God's power is actually limited or the creation of the world was a mistake is obviously anathema to Origen as well, and those views are not Epicurean. But it's convenient for Origen's purposes to suggest that anybody who doesn't hold the same view of divine providence as he does is into Epicureanism. I wouldn't, I don't think we should try too hard to find Celsus' own philosophy. I mean, he's above all a rhetorician. Obviously, Plato is more sympathetic to him than any other philosopher, but that's quite common. I mean, most rhetoricians or sophists of this period are more apt to quote Plato than anybody else, if only because Plato is himself a great literary figure, which could not be said of people like Epicurus or Chrysippus. Uh, but, you know, a rhetorician with Platonic leanings, or a rhetorician whose style is coloured by Plato, uh, would be probably more accurate than to call him a middle Platonist, as some people do. Now, Celsus's argument against the Church can be, obviously, um, codified in many ways. Since I've made the question of um, the role of the Demiurge and the um, power of God in the present world the main theme of this paper, I'll start off from his view about divine monarchy. There is a divine monarch, there is a supreme god. However, he rules through intermediate agents, the people that we normally call daimones. These people expect to be obeyed. They're obviously not above the passions, any more than the satraps of the Persian king are above human passions. Like satraps of the Persian king, they expect to be treated with honour, so it's a good idea to worship them. This is not a new notion. Uh, you find much the same thing in the De Mundo uh, of Apuleius, which is itself a translation of a work um, ascribed to Aristotle, and which hardly anybody believes to be actually by Aristotle, although its authenticity has been defended. Um, but assuming that the De Mundo really is by Apuleius, then it also falls within the Antonine era. Um, so it seems that this notion, of course there wasn't any Persian king around at the time, this notion of a kind of satrapic uh, view um, is... Um, yeah, one that commends itself to people in the reign of Marcus Aurelius. Well, I mean, not, I mean, there's no, no Achaemenid Persian king, which is what they're thinking of. Now, the true God, according to Celsus, can be known. You don't, ha you don't have to limit yourself to knowledge of and worship of the demons. There are various philosophical methods described by Origen as analysis, synthesis and analogy, through which God can be known, although Plato himself had said that to find out the father and maker of all is difficult and it's impossible once you've found him out, to proclaim him to all. So only philosophers can know this God, but at least they can have knowledge of him by the exercise of the reason that God himself has implanted in them. 
For ordinary people, on the other hand, they should participate in the cults that have been handed down to them by their ancestors. So this is what's wrong with Christianity. Because Christians aren't real philosophers, it's not as if they're inculcating the worship of the true God. On the other hand, they're separating everybody from the cults through which the knowledge of God is mediated. And of course these cults have their imperfections because they're designed for ordinary people. But it doesn't mean to say that Christians have the right to destroy faith in these cults without substituting any rational hypothesis in its place. Christians think that their own God owns all the other nations, despite the lack of evidence for that. And you know, so they think that they've got the right to treat the Roman gods uh, with absolute contempt. And they go around uh, defacing Roman statues and persuading other people not to worship the gods. Now let's imagine, Celsus said, what would happen if everybody in the Roman Empire actually became a Christian. Well, there'd obviously be no patriotism anymore. And if there was no patriotism, then there'd presumably be no conquest, no ruling of other nations. There'd be no Roman Empire whatsoever, which apparently would be a bad thing. Greeks in general, of course, do tend to be pretty sycophantic in their attitude towards the Roman Empire in this period. Now, you can see how seditious Christians are, because they're not even true to their own ancestry. They started off as Jews, but then they seceded from the Jews and formed a religion of their own. This is demonstrated at length in the character of an imaginary Jew denouncing Christianity in Book 1 of the Contra Chelsum, and therefore presumably in the early part of Celsus's own True Logos. And who are the Jews anyway? They themselves are apostates because they started off options and thought they knew better and decided to found a religion of their own. And when it comes to it, I mean, the Egyptians are pretty ridiculous too. So not only are the Christians not faithful to their genealogy, but their genealogy is a pretty poor one to begin with. And yet these people claim, you know, to disseminate wisdom to the rest of the Roman world. Now, how silly can you get? These Christians actually think that God has a body. They have a Bible which talks about God coming down and destroying the Tower of Babel, for example. Now, everybody knows that matter is a seat of evil. Anybody with you know, the slightest and most elementary knowledge of Platonism knows this. And they also know, if they know anything about the nature of God, that God doesn't consent to evil. So how on earth would God take a body? Bodies, after all, are perishable, which God isn't. Matter, on the other hand, is not perishable. There's got to be matter in the present world. And it's because of the matter in the present world that there's an irreducible quantity of evil. Plato actually says in the Theaetetus that evils won't perish, although whether he actually meant what later Platonists thought he meant is not altogether clear. Now, Christians don't accept that matter is the origin of sin. Um, they haven't you know, got hold of this insight of Plato. So they have no choice but to say that sin is actually created by God which is not surprising given that God is prepared even to enclose himself within a material body. Uh, God obviously doesn't really understand the difference between good and evil anyway, so of course he's the author of sin. It's natural, therefore, that Christianity makes its appeal only to the ignorant. They perform all these meretricious tricks, these imaginary healings or healings from imaginary diseases, because they don't want their patients to consult real physicians, either physicians of the body or physicians of the soul, because, because their pretensions would immediately be exploded if such a thing happened. So that's the the one extended pagan critique of Christianity as a religion, uh, as a theology in the Antonine era. I mean, Lucian is more concerned with the behaviour of Christians and above all with their tendency um, to get themselves killed if they can, uh, whereas Celsus is more concerned with the imperfections of Christian theology and the absurdities of the Christian scriptures. Now, it might be interesting to see how Origen responds to all these um, attacks. Uh, Origen being born in 185 AD is obviously not an Antonine figure. He's writing 70 years after Celsus, um, but it might be an interesting conclusion to see how he responds. Well, first of all, he disputes this satrapic idea of divine government. There are two different kinds of beings, first of all, angels and demons. Whatever Origen may have said elsewhere, in the Contra Chelsum, he says that angels and demons are different in nature. It's true that the angels have been given some kind of lordship over the nations. Um, the demons, on the other hand, um, are you know, totally wicked and evil, just as they are in the New Testament. And, I mean, when one is writing about you know, religion in the Roman Empire, um, it's useful and customary to spell demons with an A when you're talking about the pagan idea of demons, and demons without an A when you're talking about the Christian idea of demons, because you know, although they're, in a sense, talking about the same beings, the Christian view of what a demon is is always you know, entirely appropriate, whereas most pagans uh, hold that at least some demons are good and that they have a necessary place in the economy of the world, whereas for Christians they're just fallen beings. And indeed, Origen claims that Celsus himself admits from time to time 
that demons are fallen beings. So how on earth can it be right to worship them? Uh, we can't just say that this is a mediated knowledge of God. It's not a knowledge of God at all. What exactly the role of the angels is is not altogether clear. And in general, Christians would argue for government by God without mediation uh, most of the time, even if angels are occasionally used as messengers. Now, Celsus thinks that philosophers can know the nature of God. Well, this, in fact, is untrue. There's no way of knowing God unless God reveals himself. For two reasons. First of all, we're finite and God is infinite. So even in principle, God is not knowable. Secondly, we're handicapped by sin. Even what a human being might be able to know of God in the pristine state is not um, knowable to us now because our cognitive faculties are inevitably limited by the um, diminution of our moral faculties. He also says that God is beyond usia, not an usia at all, but beyond substance, um, something that could also be said of Plato's form of the good, as a way of underlining the unknowability of God. In his view, Celsus simply doesn't have an adequately high conception of God. And this is actually quite a common Christian argument at the time. Christian or biblical understanding of God is more transcendent even than the Platonic understanding. Now, as far as the religions of the vulgar are concerned, everybody has just enough natural reason to realise how iniquitous and how absurd these are once the Christians have jogged their memories. They may not, you know, when they're habituated to them, they may not be able to see the folly of pagan religion. But the reason why so many people are deserting pagan temples for the church, according to Origen, is because everybody can actually see how absurd these religions are. So again, the idea that these are in any sense mediations of divinity is, from Origen's point of view, just ludicrous. As far as the Romans are concerned, there's no reason at all why the Romans would lose anything by being converted to Christianity. I mean, they'd then be all servants of the one true God, and presumably, therefore, all their prayers would be answered. Presumably, their prayers would not be prayers for the conquest and extermination of other nations anymore. Uh, at least this was made clear by later figures like Lactantius and Augustine. Um, but insofar as um, they had any wholesome desires, these desires could, of course, only be expedited by having a faith in the truth. Now, the calumnies which Celsus has thrown at the Jews are of long standing. They'd already been rebutted by Josephus, so it's perfectly easy for Origen to rebut them as well. According to the Bible, which is the only historical authority that Origen will accept, they were already speaking Hebrew before they left Egypt. So obviously they couldn't have been Egyptians. They must already have been an alien race. As far as their wisdom is concerned, Solomon was wiser than anyone else on earth, um, and Moses proved himself wiser than the magicians of Pharaoh. So the idea that Christians or Jews took their wisdom from the Egyptians is obviously, uh, again, baseless. Um, their wisdom is superior because it comes from God. As far as Jesus himself is concerned, we can see from his miraculous life that he's the one foretold by the prophets, as he himself said. So Christians are not apostates from Jews, any more than Jews are apostates from uh, Egypt. On the contrary, by failing to recognise him as the one whom their own prophets foretold, it's the Jews, of course, who are the real apostates. Now, matter isn't the source of evil. Um, it's neither evil nor good. Origen has a very attenuated view of matter, and in fact is one of the first uh, thinkers to formulate uh, the view that we, we can dispense with the concept of matter altogether. In, again, in the country Chelsea, he doesn't go so far as to dispense with the concept of matter, but he does say that it's completely without properties, and so God can use it for any work at all, including, if he wants, the work of becoming incarnate. Being incarnate, Christ is able to mediate between the ingenerate, the Godhead proper, which of course is superior to all matter and all cognition, He's able to mediate between the Godhead and the created world. That's why it's necessary for him to take a body. We hear him in the flesh, but eventually we come to know him in the spirit. There is an ascent from a fleshly or sensual understanding of Christ to a more spiritual one. He's described as a second God on one occasion or two occasions, I think. But Origen is not arguing at this point for the inferiority of Christ to the Father. Um, he's arguing on the contrary that whatever cannot be true of the Father can't be true of him either. So insofar as he's God, he's not finite, he's not weak, he's not subject to any imbecility any more than the Father. He does, of course, take these things on himself insofar as he chooses to become incarnate. Um, but exactly how Origen understands relations within the Trinity is less clear here than it is in some of the works. Now, Celsus has said that the quantity of sin is irreducible, but why do it follow? I mean, we grant that creation is uniform, that matter is one, that everything is governed by the same natural laws, but creation is a work of God. And God is not, as Celsus claims, Christians say, the author of sin. Sin arises from the free choice of rational individuals when they're behaving, um, when they fail to behave in accordance with their rationality. 
The four consists in literally four, from intellectual vision, which is what the first human beings had apparently, to a more sensuous mode of vision. Although Adam and Eve may not be conceived literally here, um, he says at 440 that Adam and Eve stand for all humans, so this may be a kind of fall that takes place in everybody, maybe a fall that took place at the beginning of the human race, maybe a fall that turned heaven before embodiment, although he doesn't say that in this work, and evidence for his saying it elsewhere is intermittent. Finally, as far as the status of Christians as philosophers is concerned, well, the apostles were simple men, and of course that's all to the better. It means that they're not sophists like Celsus. They don't make things up, they tell the truth. Um, but they certainly always had enough perspicacity, and te Christian teachers now have enough perspicacity to recognise when someone is an irredeemable sinner. And people like that, they excommunicate. In fact, they don't go around teaching in the public square the way philosophers do. They teach... Um, in their own places, presumably houses rather than churches at this time, so that they can make sure that nobody unworthy enters the assembly. Now, if by chance a philosopher does actually happen to teach something edifying, Christians won't try and deter people from consulting him, quite the reverse, says Origen. I encourage my own pupils to seek out philosophers like that. And he doesn't add what we know from other sources, that he himself made his pupils learn the four great philosophies before they studied the Bible. It's true that sinners are invited to the church, but of course they're not invited into the church to sin, they're invited into the church to repent. So it's only a half-truth to say that Christianity is the religion of sinners, of sinners. Now Celsus can say that Christians heal imaginary diseases and teach people to neglect the true physicians, but when you actually study the doctrines of these philosophers, all you find is materialism, atheism, denial of providence, thoroughgoing Epicureanism. I mean, to all intents and purposes, all the philosophers are Epicureans when you compare them to Christianity. And for that reason, of course, it's not surprising that Celsus himself falls into that category. So those are Origen's responses, as I say, falling well outside the Antonine period. Not accepting, just any more than Christian apologists of the Antonine period accepted the demiurgic view of God as one who is limited in power. But, as I say, it does appear that in the Antonine era, a lot of people were discussing the role of God in creation, the relation of God to the world, and that the demiurgic understanding of God as one who was benign but limited in power commended itself to a lot of different groups, all of whom uh, drew different corollaries from that belief. Thank you very much indeed.